Hello everyone, it's December 18th, 2018. So Virgin Galactic touches space once again, and rocket surgery isn't brain science. It just takes a determined cosmonaut, a knife, and a reason to cut into a Soyuz. So let's get into it and lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 189 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So next week will be Christmas, but we will be recording. We have just discussed this. So normally we take a week off during the holidays, but well, have we missed a single episode? Like, have we missed a single week this year we, so far? We did a short, yeah, this year we did a short episode, what, mm-hmm. two weeks ago? Yeah, but I'm counting that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that totally counts. Um yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think that we missed an episode this year. Good job, team. It, it's a, it's insane to put out 52 episodes a year. Like, honestly, how many people mm-hmm. do that? There's probably more than a few podcasts that I listen to that have, you know, a new episode every week, but not a whole lot, really. You know, like, usually mm-hmm. there's like yeah. one or two weeks. That yeah, and they're usually do. not ones that are hitting, you know, an hour and change yeah, <laughs> fairly <real>. often. Yeah. <laughs> for real. Yeah, like a little 20, 25 minute ones. I, I see them come out at a really high clip, but yeah. All right. What else can we pat ourselves on the back about? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but, um, you know, we are doing it. So, yeah, we'll be here next week, which is awesome. And uh, hopefully some people will find some value in listening to a podcast about space during Christmas because um, <laughs> it will be released on the 25th, which is Christmas Day, right? So, yeah, oh, you're going to you're going to pu- you're going to publish on Christmas. Yeah. I figure oh, why not. I can't wait to see the stats on that. <laughs> we'll see how it works out. Or lack thereof, I should say. Yeah. That's our Christmas present to all of you. Yeah. Without further ado, let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. So, yeah, we got a few winners. And what was our clue for last week? Fixing door latches. Fixing door okay. latches. Okay. Yeah. So this week we have three winners. Uh, Jay Adink, who, by the way, Jason, you can just guess wrong from now on. You don't need to like actually make an attempt because I know that you're like twice the size of me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just going to win from now on. I'm not going <laughs> to not going to piss you off. Uh HZ Science and Law Loving. This week in spaceflight history was the 20th of December 1999. It was the launch of STS-103, also known as Hubble Servicing Mission 3A. So, as we go through, I'll probably be talking about other uh Hubble servicing missions, so there'll be SM-3A is the format that I'm going to use because that's uh so the they use it. So I was going to go over previous servicing missions, but we've done, We I think I've done almost all of them as This Week in Space Fight History uh, events in the past. So I'm not going to do that. But suffice it to say, there were five SM1, 2, 3A, 3B, and 4. And so this is like smack in the middle of uh of the hubble servicing missions on board there were a lot of people uh curtis brown jr was the commander scott kelly was the pilot then they had mission specialists uh john grunsfeld jean-francois clairvois i could be wrong on that pronunciation from uh, isa uh michael full stephen smith and claude nicolier uh, also from isa so let let's get straight to the clue on board was uh boy anytime there's an acronym i want to call it an experiment but it's it's really a repair package called the aft shroud latches repair kit or aslerk a-s-l-r-k <laughs> oh, um boy. right yeah pretty good um i've got some photos in here basically the aft shroud doors uh were warped due to high temperatures and then torque that was applied to them i believe on a previous uh, repair mission. So they're basically going to repair the latches. Unfortunately, this is one of the repair tasks that didn't get completed. Actually, it didn't get done at all. And so uh, th- there are a couple more that we'll talk about. They also replaced 
uh, a fine guidance sensor, an FGS. I love this so much. I mean, like everybody should know that Hubble is one of my favorite things or the, the Hubble servicing missions, I, I think are really great. Uh, but the fine guidance sensor is so cool. So during SM2, they actually pulled uh, an FGS off of Hubble and they end up refurbishing it on the ground and reflying it. So basically an FGS is an optical interferometer. And uh, we, we've talked about interferometry a little bit, but it basically is a technique to allow you to get very, very, very precise measurements by looking at the interference of uh, wavelengths. So in this case, we're talking about photons. And we're actually talking about photons, I believe, in the optical range. And so basically, there are three of these guys. They, uh, If you think about four of them in a circle separated by 90 degrees, it's like that, except one of them is replaced with a sci another science package. So it's three at 90 degrees pointing outward from, you know, the skirt or the belt line of, of shuttle. And so basically they lock onto a star and then don't just track it with a camera. They actually track it using interferometry. And so they can get down to a seven thousandth of an arc second. So that's 0 0.007 of an arc second. That is crazy. Um, and, yeah. So seven thousandths of an arc second of deviation over at least 24 hours. So, you know, Hubble requires very, very good pointing and very, very good pointing requires very, very good sensing of which direction you're pointing in. And so these these FGSs are actually so good at doing what they do that they actually use them as an experiment. Um, so they they're able to do a couple of things, but my favorite is that they were able to track the wobble of stars due to orbiting exoplanets <laughs> using these sensors. So they basically turned into their own telescopes. That's so cool. <laughs> oh, so, so cool. Um, so anyway, they put a refurbished FGS on. Um, they put handrail, or they put covers on the handrails so that while they're working in the Afstrad area, they were worried about paint flecking off of the handrail or off of the handrails. So they put covers on them to protect the Afstrad area from contamination. Um, they added some insulation. Uh, one was called the new outer blanket layer or noble, which is great. That one was planned. They got part of it installed, but not completely installed. They also brought along the shield shell replacement fabric or SSRF. Um, and that wasn't installed at all. The uh, Noble was rigid. SSRF was, was flexible. Notably, they replaced some gyroscopes, um, like rate sensor unit gyroscopes, not, not reaction wheels that help point. So just pointing help, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we've talked about these before, but I'm going to talk about them again because they're so darn cool. So it's a gyroscope, you know, basically a spinning wheel. Uh, it spins 19,200 RPM on gas bearings because gas bearings work really well in space. And so that spinning wheel is inside of a cylinder. That cylinder is suspended in super thick oil inside the outer casing. And then there are hair thin wires, literally wires as thick as a human hair that stick through the thick oil to power the cylinder. And that oil was injected into that chamber using pressurized air, just regular atmosphere air, which of course has oxygen in it. And the oxygen corroded the wires. So the fix was to build the exact same thing, but to pressurize it with pure nitrogen instead of atmospheric air. So Hubble has got six of these guys. 
they're packaged in in pairs, so you know you're placed two at a time. So uh, we're we're in December currently in the year, so that means that this week in space flight history happened in December, uh, the twentieth of December. So back in the previous January, they had uh, they'd been losing gyroscopes, and they uh, were down to three in January. Um, and three is the fewest you can run on. You have to have three or more. Um, and so they went from January to December with only three gyroscopes, and they, they finally got a chance to replace them. Um, they also replaced one of the two S-band single-axis transmitters, or S-SATs. They also, this is really cool, they replaced, or they, they installed a solid-state recorder. So originally, the, oh, these are so cool. So originally, Hubble was flown with three reel-to-reel tape recorders how cool is that mm. by the way uh, both of the voyagers are flying with eight track recorders um yeah. so oh god i i just love tape technology in space so hubble originally flew with three reel-to-reel tape recorders of course that's you know there's so many problems there you know one failure in a number of different components will destroy the thing if you know if the tape becomes cor- uh, corroded you're done if the seal breaks you know cuz they're they're a vacuum seal i mean it's just they're a nightmare so what they did was they built solid state recorders um which are very similar to you know ssds that we have in our computers today just a lot bigger and a lot clunkier but uh they can store 12 gigabits not gigabytes gigabits 12 gigabits um but that was still 10 times more than the tape recorders could record they also can host two data streams so either you can record science and engineering at the same time or you can record science and also replay science or you know you can do two different streams at once which is really cool and then they they're also really smart they do self-testing and if they decide that a segment of memory is damaged or corrupted or something they can actually skip over that segment uh, reducing their overall storage but preserving the data and and making them uh, more robust over time so anyway there are three reel-to-reel recorders when they launch Hubble. One of them had already been replaced, uh, I believe, during SM2. Might have been SM1. I mean, it's got to be one of those two because those are the only two before uh, <laughs> th- uh, 3A. Uh, but anyway, one of them had already been replaced, so they replaced a second one. And I believe Hubble is has still got a reel-to-reel recorder and then two of the solid-state recorders. I could be wrong about that. They also replaced voltage temperature improvement kits, or they, they installed t- uh, voltage temperature improvement kits. Basically, they provide battery protection during safe mode to make sure that you don't overheat or overcharge your batteries. And, and so those are all the things that they replaced. And I got one more fact that I think is really cool. This act, this mission actually uh, set the record for the highest shuttle altitude ever achieved. Um, a completely different mission achieved the highest inclination ever achieved. And that was also uh, this week in spaceflight history. But uh, this shuttle uh, had a, an apoapsis of 609 kilometers or 378 miles. And if anybody can answer this question, I, I looked this up and I'm not sure why this is true. I've got some guesses, but I'm not sure why this is true. So this this shuttle went to 609 kilometers SM2 the previous time that they visited Hubble and they also boosted Hubble's orbit. That apoapsis was only 574 kilometers. Where's the discrepancy? Does did Hubble boost itself? Is this uh, just orbital dynamics 
boosting it higher? Yeah, well, I mean, my guess would be that the 609 kilometers was not actually the orbit of Hubble. That's just how high the shuttle went. Oh, to go into during a phasing. phasing orbit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a really good guess. Okay. I, I think David's right. If anybody can confirm, please let us know. Oh, and, and by the way, all these repairs were done on EVA, obviously. And the the EVA schedule was so strenuous that they had to alternate pairs. So two people would go out one day, two people would go out the next day. They had four days. So two people, two pairs each got to go on two EVAs, but they had to swap them out because it was just so exhausting. That's yeah. cool. Hubble's awesome. Hubble deserved <laughs> all of this attention. Uh, and I think it's oh, such absolutely. a great a great little feather in humanity's cap that we get to say that we were able to put so much work into such an amazing space telescope. Yeah, for sure. And it's kind of amazing. This is not a typical shuttle mission, but still, you can put seven people in a space shuttle, and mm-hmm. that's how many were on this mission. And right now, yeah. there's not that many people in space. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of like those were the good old days, and hopefully we'll have them back soon enough. Yeah. And one interesting thing, um, I was just perusing the Wikipedia a uh, little article here that we have. And apparently, and I didn't know that this even existed, but one of the astronauts, John Grunsfeld, brought up a Martian mm. flag or uh, yeah. a oh, planet right. Mars yeah, flag. Oh, right. Yeah, I was looking at that. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing until right now. Yeah, it depends on who you ask. There are a number of Mars right. flags. Although I have to say, and it's basically just a tricolor flag, red, green, and blue. And that's supposed to symbolize the red Mars and then green Mars. And then I guess like eventually a blue Mars that has an ocean. So that's where the color scheme comes from. But I have to say it does look better than the Martian flag on the Expanse, which is a show I love, but I hate. That's like the ugliest flag I've ever seen. And I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah, I mean, there are definitely some good Martian flags and some bad ones. And this one is not too bad. It's kind of very traditional looking. It just looks kind of like a standard European flag, really. Yeah, exactly. Old tricolor style. Yeah. Well, so so let me point out that the Mars flag on the Expanse is not for Mars. It's the Martian Congressional Republic. So it's a nation flag. <laughs> so it's allowed to be horrible. <laughs> on the other hand, they're... Uh, their patches on the on the armor look really good. Yeah, those look cool. But uh, I don't like yeah the flag of the I'm sorry the Martian Congressional Republic. Uh, <laughs> I don't like it. it. It's just I don't know who designed that. It's like the dumbest looking thing I've ever seen. Sorry, yeah, that was just a little non related rant. Anyway, <laughs> that was my favorite rant I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, so moving on to next week in spaceflight history, uh, what is our clue? All right, next week in 1995, the clue is TikTok, TikTok. 1995, TikTok, TikTok. Uh, was there a grandfather clock brought on board station that needed? No, because that was no, that was before Shh. station. So never mind. Uh, Mirror. <laughs> I say the Jeff the Jeff Bridges film is off by one year. Blown away. Uh, I don't get the reference. The Irish Bombers. Tommy Lee Jones. Not much space white in that though. So if you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SFAN. Good luck. Good luck, everybody. Good luck. Spaceship Two, VSS Unity, has actually flown. Um, oh, or I, I should I should say has Yay. has actually flown to the edge of space or to space, depending on who you ask. So that's mm-hmm. you know maybe a conversation we'll have here. But um, <laughs> but yeah, cool. So yeah, this was on December thirteenth, and it took off from the Mojave Air and Space Port, and this is the fourth powered test flight of VSS Unity, and this is the highest so far. So the two test pilots, Mark Stuckey and C.J. Sturkow, they will get astronaut wings. I guess at least ones that count here in the U.S. Have you have you seen the astronaut wings that they're getting awarded? Uh uh-uh. uh no, I have not. Seen uh, they they have the the commercial crew logo in the middle, which is fantastic. Oh. Also, do you guys do you guys remember? Did you ever fly when they gave you when they gave little kids 
a little plastic wings pin because I loved that as a kid. <laughs> I would wear those things until they broke. So what are the numbers here? We have uh, the space plane fired its engines for 60 seconds and it reached 83 kilometers and Mach 2.9. So apparently this was longer than they had expected to burn. And I think we talked about this the last time that they did a test is that they're not very firm on, like, on exactly how long that they burn these engines for. So I, I kind of wonder what precipitates that change in burn time. From here and what Stucky and Sturkow were saying afterwards, I got the sense that it was just they really wanted to make sure they got into space or at least got above 80 kilometers. And so I think they gave a little more oomph okay. to really make sure that they got there. At least he has one quote that I think I can't remember if it was Stucky or Sturkow. One of them said something along those lines, like we let it burn for a little longer because we just really wanted to make sure we got up there. <laughs> Got to get those wings. All right. Okay. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and so uh, the maximum burn time will eventually be somewhere around 65 seconds, actually. I don't know how much higher that will take them. I mean, probably quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Like an extra five seconds of burn, do you think that would put them maybe above the 100-kilometer mark? It, it depends on whether they do the extra time at the bottom of their burn or at the top of their burn. What do you mean at the bottom well, of Well, because if they, if they do the extra burn first, then it's mostly just fighting gravity. But if they do it at the end, then they already have enough speed that it, it really can get them up high. Well, oh god, you mean this before joke they... is not going well. Oh, it's, okay. I was, <laughs> Sorry. I was no, because say. I was say, I okay, you were. I was gonna say like oh. yeah. same thing. <laughs> Same thing. Yep. I'm so sorry. I thought that was going to be Thank real you. funny. It's a good joke. I just, uh, I don't trust myself enough to call you out on that. And so I was just like, oh boy. It did cross my mind. Like, okay, this might be a joke, but it's, I'm going to keep going with this because maybe he thinks he's making a point. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, because I was thinking like maybe before they pitch up, maybe or something. I don't know. I was That's like, what I was thinking. Yeah, you can yeah. start sooner or just continue later. But yeah, <laughs> sorry. Okay. All right. So yeah. So like sixty-five second burn is actually how long this is going to be, and maybe that'll mm. take them, you know, beyond a hundred kilometers. I think that you put this in here, Dennis, that, that this was mm -hmm. the first human spaceflight by an American since July two thousand eleven. That's correct. Wow. By an American vehicle. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the experiments? I don't know. I didn't know anything about those actually. I mean, there was like I I thought that. I was just kind of surprising. I, I didn't really look too much about what they were, but they carried, yeah, four experimental payloads from NASA through a uh, program that they have, which it seemed from uh, Virgin Galactic side that that was just, uh, you know, helpful for adding some more mass to the uh, spacecraft. Uh, that you would normally get from the passengers. But uh, it seemed like it was very kind of benign uh, mm -hmm. sort of things, like uh, how dust interacts in microgravity. I remember that mm. was one of the uh, payloads. And so, I mean, you know, you got the space, you know, people on the Twitter sphere, even though I think they're blatantly wrong, were criticizing uh, Falcon Heavy for, you know, why did you send a Tesla up there instead of something valuable and whatnot, which I know is misguided entirely. Uh, not entirely. Yeah, that'll be Ben's <laughs> argument right there. That was Ben's whole... You know where Cube I sat in the glove box. Look, I'll say it again. Cube sat in the glove box. It's all you need. <laughs> I haven't Sorry. heard that. You are persuading me. But yeah. And so, I mean, I, th I thought that was cool. Although I got to give uh, Branson credit, right? Remember, I think it was back, yeah, in October when he talked about them being, he kind of just out of nowhere said that they would be in space uh, in weeks, not months, and that Branson himself would personally be in space in months, not years. And uh, I didn't really know how much credence to give that, but it looks like uh, 
he was correct so far, at least about the first bit. And so we'll see if, you know, maybe in the next couple of months we'll have uh, Branson up there as well. My assumption is that uh, this test was, it had already been scheduled and it was bound to happen. So he could confidently say that, mm-hmm. that they were probably just tying up some kind of a loose end just to make sure that they got clearance from the FAA or something or other. Um, I mean, things seem to be proceeding pretty well, but just given how long things have been delayed, I wonder... I mean, the real question is how long before they start taking passengers, which is something that we've talked about again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Who can say? And now, Dennis, you say that they did make it to space. And exactly what's your rationale for why exactly why they did reach space? So, I mean, I basically have just been sold on uh, Jonathan McDowell's argument that there's kind of if you think of space as once you're out of the Earth's atmosphere, then the meso the mesopause at around 80 kilometers uh, seems more physically motivated than 100 kilometers and uh it's just you know the atmosphere below that is just kind of like more like the normal atmosphere we're familiar with dominated by nitrogen well mixed uh and then once you go above 80 kilometers and of course it it varies you know day and night and depending on what season it is but um once you go above that, then you get into the weird stuff. I mean, the thermosphere and that we already know the shuttle is in space and that's flying in the thermosphere. Leo is in space and that's in the thermosphere. So if you wanted to have it for no other reason, just to have it have it be physically motivated based on our atmospheric structure, then you wouldn't want it to be in the middle of one of our zones of the atmosphere. You know what I mean? And 100 kilometers, the Kármán line is in the middle of the thermosphere, not the bottom or the top or just it's buried in the thermosphere and so that's why i think 80 seems as good as 100 and i don't know i was kind of sold uh, mcdowell had a uh nice paper that basically it's only 10 pages and so i recommend people go check it out only 10 pages people <laughs> <laughs> well that's actually a pretty good argument i think maybe you've sold me too so maybe 80 kilometers hey. is better than 100 it's not <laughs> it's not quite as round of a number as 100 but it still you know ends in a zero mm-hmm. so i'll take it <laughs> awesome yeah, it could have been more eloquent, but also, I mean, yeah, and when you're above the mesopause, that's where you're going to see darkness as well, you know. Mm-hmm. There's, Yeah, it's pretty cool. Cool. Well, with that, let's move on to the other big story, uh, a weird one, <laughs> the investigation into that hole that was accidentally drilled into a soy spacecraft. Mm-hmm. So this time, not by accident, yeah. they uh, they hacked away a good portion of it with a knife. <laughs> like, yeah, when does well, that ever dr- happen? Drilled is the right word. Let's be clear. Um, I think it was like back in October, uh, Roscosmos said, yes, this is definitely a drill. Like we can see you know, different scuffs on the inside that show that this this was a drill skidding around before it went mm-hmm. through. So people were kind of uh, talking about, oh, okay, so what, is, what does this investigation tell us? Might it have been a micrometeorite? No, we knew it wasn't a micrometeorite, but this does definitely confirm this. So uh, were either of you guys watching this live? I did not see it live. I, I watched the first couple hours and then the actual cutting, but oh my God, Ben, did you hear the flight controllers and how kind of they were not putting up with any of their nonsense? Right. <laughs> Right. Oh. Hey guys, be careful. Uh can you guys be careful? Ooh, hey, maybe slow down. Ooh, gu- oh guys, be careful. <laughs> so is this all on the Russian side? Yes. Yeah. At one point she literally was like, uh, Oleg, if if you're talking while I'm talking, you're not gonna hear me. So you need to not yep. do that. <laughs> yep. This, this this seemed pretty stressful. So uh in the show notes we'll have a link to the entire spacewalk so you can kind of click around and find some things you like um so so basically how do you get down to the soyuz right there are no handholds it, it's kind of stressful luckily they have um strellas i think they have two or three strellas 
uh, which just means crane. And it's basically a, a telescoping tube that you've got a hand crank on one end and that, that end is secured to the space station. The other end, you can kind of point uh, in a direction and lock it down. So they, uh, put a foot restraint on one Strela and then lowered it down to where they needed to go. So, you know, at least there was a, there was a little bit of leverage to be had, but yeah, then one, once they're there, right. As if that isn't stressful enough, it took like half the spacewalk just to get there. Then, you know, the Soyuz is black on the outside. There's no arrow pointing to a hole. So they had to <laughs> look at, uh, at the logos and badging on the outside and kind of measure with their hands and kind of figure out, okay, it's probably here. And then they start cutting. And so they have like a dagger, like it seriously looks like a hunting knife, which, which was tethered some of the time, some of the mm-hmm. time they took the tether off. I, I may be wrong, but when I was watching that, I saw the tether flopping around. It did not look like it was attached to anything. So they, you know, do what you do and stab the Soyuz with with a knife Mm -hmm. and kind of use this knife to kind of walk down a a long strip. And then they, you know, rounded a corner and ended up cutting out a flap. And so part of it was done with uh, this knife. Some of it was done with what looked like gardening shears, which had very cheap looking handles because like every, you know, it's all about weight. So it's just like rolled aluminum tubing for handles. And so they, uh, and like the tubing didn't even have a hole in it to attach a tether. So they had to duct tape tethers onto it or a Kapton tape tethers onto it, space duct tape. And so what, what happens when you stab a Soyuz? And this is the thing that I had no clear image in my head before. And, and now I do is uh, there's, you know, the gray blanket that we're familiar with on the outside. Then underneath that, it looks like shiny wrapping paper. You know, like if somebody was to give you a gift bag that had a bunch of shiny tissue paper stuffed in it, that's what it looks like. So they have multiple uh, layers of insulation to cut through. You know, I mean, it's it's probably, um, what's that plastic material? Uh, mylar is what it looked like. And we all know that mylar isn't the hardest thing to cut, but if you have to cut a continuous sheet of it with a knife that you're holding in a pressurized spacesuit glove, it really looked physically strenuous. Like they were mm-hmm. struggling to to put leverage on this uh, on this knife. And it makes me wonder why they didn't make a bigger handle for the knife. Seems like if you were to to have a handle that was you know a couple inches in diameter instead of an inch in diameter, it seems like that'd be easier to hold on to in a spacesuit glove. I don't know. They're the professionals. I'm sure there's a good reason. Anyway, so they they cut through uh, the outer blanket. They cut through these several uh, sheets of like mylar, you know, kind of shiny sheeting. While they're doing this, the whole time, there is confetti spewing out of this hole. Every time they move, (laughs) there's mylar going Uh everywhere. And so I saw some people on on Twitter make a, 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 a very funny joke. They said, um, you know, this is potentially an MMOD hole, and now we're making a bunch of more MMOD, right? And it's like, well, okay, good, good joke. I, I like the symmetry of that, but of course, everything, all these little pieces of debris have a very, very high coefficient, uh, dra- drag coefficient, and so everything's going to be deorbited in less than a month. Uh, and more than that, it'll be dragged away from the space station's orbit instantly, right? None of this is coming back on the next orbit. So yeah, so they, they get through that. Um, they are able to fold up sort of this uh, this layer cake of 
this flap that they've cut out. They're able to fold it back, uh, and then it springs back closed, and then they fold it back, and it springs back closed, and just a lot, I mean, very fiddly. Like, you guys know how all this works. I almost wish that they had brought tape and they could tape the flap open, but it was so untidy, I'm sure it wouldn't have worked very well. So anyway, they finally get this flap to kind of stay in place, then they're faced with a flat metal sheet. Because outside of the pressure hull, the pressure vessel, are several layers of, uh, I'm guessing steel is what it looked like, thin steel sheets that comprise the MMOD shielding, right? The micrometeorite and uh, orbital debris uh, shielding. The first thing to note is that the shielding was perfect, right? There, it was flawless. There's no way that this was a strike from the outside of the vehicle. This was absolutely something that happened inside the vehicle uh, with a drill gun. And we can even see, you know, the the bit skittering around on the inside. So let's be clear, this is definitely from the inside. So anyway, it's perfectly, uh, perfectly smooth, which is great in one sense and horrible in the other, because now you have to cut through several layers of metal sheets without an edge to start from so you know they go back to stabbing their precious spacecraft get a little a little window open and then go at it with the shears and they open this giant flap and the hole was just barely outside of the flap that they had been working on this whole time so they had to kind of expand the hole downward uh but i mean they got real darn close you can see it that's that's great um, so the, the hole just looked like a little black dot. Um, remember that on the inside of the vehicle, uh, first thing they did was, you know, lick a finger and stick it on that didn't work for very long. So then they, um, coated gauze, like medical gauze in resin and then shoved that on the hole. And that did a great job. So, you know, of course it sucks some of the resin out. And so there, you know, there's a little dome of resin and so they got some great photos. They also wanted to get a sample of the resin. I don't know exactly what that tells you, but hopefully we'll find oh, out. Oh man, that was that was my question. I was yeah. not entirely sure on that either. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I I don't know. So first they were gonna swab it with uh with a Q-tip basically and uh and and get a sample. And then they decided, you know what, that's not good enough. Let's try to get a, an actual chunk. So uh, they went at it with needle nose pliers basically or or forceps, and uh, couldn't get it, couldn't get it, couldn't get it, couldn't get it. Finally, uh, MCC says, you know what, let's just try one more time and then we'll go home. Last time, got a solid hold, got a chunk of resin off of it, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. So then they stuck the forceps into a bag and, and took it inside. So what is the point of that sample return? Because I don't know what they're hoping to get, because it seems that like any kind of clue as to what made this hole, that would most likely be on the that should be on the inside mm-hmm. because that's where the drill was made. I've got I've got a guess. I don't know if this is super reasonable, but it it might be to um, get a better idea of how we patch holes in the future. If you find out what went through the hole and what stayed behind, maybe that maybe that's oh helpful. maybe the. Yeah, there's like a fractionation. Some of the yeah, stuff in the epoxy like maybe moves out. Okay. Or And I also know that they did several layers of epoxy, so maybe they're looking to see how much air was trapped in it or something. I don't I don't know for sure. Um, so yeah, it's it's fortunate that Kononenko uh, was in rotation. They did not move him up in the rotation. Uh, this just by coincidence, he was planned to go up on MS-10, which would have normally gone up later because uh, MS-9 had to abort. Uh, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. He he was planned to go up on MS-11, MS-10 aborted, and what they 
operated on was MS9. Anyway, you know, it just it just happens that he did this. And the reason that that's fortunate is because back in 2008, he had to go do rocket surgery in a very similar way. Basically, they had two Soyuz reentries in a row have to do a ballistic reentry, which A is harder on the people inside and B it puts them off course. Uh, by you know tens of kilometers hundreds of kilometers something like that and so they narrowed it down to bad pyro bolts um, i don't understand exactly how they what damage they caused but they're like okay it's a problem with a pyro bolt in this position so they said okay your soyuz is affected so we're going to send you out we're going to have you cut through uh, the thermal blankets on the outside and then we're going to have you just pull that bolt out. And that, that's exactly what they did. And so I think this means that he's a professional rocket surgeon at this point, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like doc, Dr. Oleg. I mean, like it's, this is really cool. He's got like, he's got the knife. He like flips, flips it off and then like goes crazy. Like it looks like he's yeah. <laughs> going for the comedic effect. Oh, it's so good. Let's do some short and sweet. We got three this week. And Dennis, you're going to do our first one. Right. I don't know why I said that, but I've decided it. Copy that. So the Chang'e 4 enters lunar orbit. On December 12th, the Chang'e spacecraft entered an elliptical lunar orbit with a paralune of 100 kilometers. It has been confirmed that the spacecraft is functioning well. Three trajectory correction maneuvers were planned for the lunar orbit transfer. However, only one was necessary. The next tasks will be to refine Chang'e's orbit and establish communication with the Trey Chiao relay satellite, followed by the landing of the Chang'e rover next month. And next up, RS-25 stand test was aborted. Uh, so 10 seconds into a stand test at Stennis, the vibrations being thrown off by an RS-25 planned for use on SLS exceeded the acceptable range. In the video, a flame is seen blowing away from the powerhead. The engine was successfully safed, but NASA hasn't reported back on the cause of the problem. Everyone's crossing their fingers for this being a stand issue and not a rocket issue. Finally, OneWeb cuts its constellation by a third. So satellite broadband startup OneWeb has recently conducted ground tests that demonstrated better than expected performance of its satellites. This has led to a reduction in its constellation from 900 to 600 satellites. OneWeb founder Greg Weiler has said that this means a reduction in costs. However, there are suspicions within the industry that the cost per satellite has risen significantly beyond the initial $500,000 price point, which worries investors. Weiler has confirmed that the costs have risen but have not exceeded $1 million per satellite. So that's the current status of OneWeb. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week we have a correction, although more of a further discussion that we can have. Yeah, a, a question and a little tidbit. This was caused by something that Dennis said. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm officially a part of the team now. That is <laughs> yeah. first uh, correction burn. But yes, uh, Andrew Levine, who uh, works at Kinetics, Kinetics at uh, which is uh, a company working with uh, Osiris Rex's flight dynamics team, he correctly pointed out that I had basically confused myself uh, uh, last week when I talked about OSIRIS-REx entering orbit around Bennu on December 3rd. Uh, it's not in orbit around Bennu yet. That's going to happen December 31st in a couple weeks. And so what had actually happened that I misinterpreted was that it arrived at Bennu. And what makes, you know, what counts as arrival? Well, essentially it was the uh, flight team 
uh, chose December 3rd as the kind of day that they right. were like, okay, we're there. Yeah. And so uh, thanks, Andrew, for that information and that correction, Burn, as well as uh, a little follow-up that uh, he pointed out, which was pretty neat, is that, right, this was OSIRIS-REx, you know, arrived at Bennu and began the preliminary survey. And that has been going on for the last, you know, week or so, a couple weeks now. And they just uh, yesterday, as of this recording, successfully executed their final maneuver, which was only a 20 centimeter per second delta V, taking them oh, to the man. South Pole with a seven kilometer closest approach. So, yeah. How cool is that? <laughs> so the preliminary survey, the last maneuver has been done. The detailed survey will be the next kind of big step taking place in late February. So thank you again, Andrew. Yeah, it's very cool to hear from you. Thank you so much. So thank you, Andrew Levine. And now let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And we got, I think, four of them, actually. So pretty busy week for a for the holiday season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of Christmas time rockets. All right, so what's our first one, Dennis? So first up, we've got a Soyuz STA with a upper stage frigate. Uh, we'll be carrying CSO-1 to orbit. The CSO-1 satellite is the first of three new generation, high-resolution optical imaging satellites for the French military. Uh, and this launch will take place on December 18th at 1637.14 UTC from Kourou. The next, we have a Delta IV Heavy. Oh, just, I love this rocket. A Delta IV Heavy <laughs> flying Enroll 71. And of course, so that's classified. We're not allowed to know anything about Enroll. Don't even say the word Enroll. Um, this is flying on December 19th at 0157 hours UTC. And that's flying out of Vandenberg. So I know that my dad is going to text me about it. (laughs) All right. And then next up on December 19th is a GSLV Mark II, and that's launching GSAT 7A. And that is a geostationary communication satellite for the Indian Air Force. And that is a launch window beginning at 1030 UTC through 1430 UTC. So a nice long launch window. And that will, of course, be lifting off from the Satish Dawan Space Center from their second launch pad specifically. So finally this week, we've got the Proton-M with a Breeze-M upper stage. That'll be taking the Blagovesht N13L to orbit. This will take place on December 21st at 0.1500 UTC uh, with a window ranging from 0.15 to 0.30 uh, UTC. And this is a uh, classified Russian satellite, and so not much information on there. But it'll be flying. Uh, it'll be launching out of the Baikonur. Blagovest is going to be meeting up with the Enrol satellite, and they're going to have a little Christmas together in space. <laughs> and, and then we have a couple things on NASA TV. Um, so on December eighteenth at uh, four forty p.m. Eastern time, which is like going to be like two hours after the show comes out. Um, will be the change of command ceremony. Um, And then the following day, December 19th, they will be doing their farewell and hatch closure ceremony. Coverage starts at 4.45 p.m. Eastern time, and the hatch closure is scheduled for 5.20 p.m. Eastern time. Um, Then they'll be undocking at 8.40 p.m. Eastern time, and then deorbiting is planned for 11.10 p.m. Eastern time landing is scheduled for 12.03 a.m. Eastern time, of course, the next day on December 20th. And that is the Soyuz, right, that they've just hacked into, right? That's the one that's coming back? All right, uh-huh. cool. Yeah. But it's important to understand that that part does not have to reenter the Earth at, or it does yes. reenter, but with no one in it. So, <laughs> Right. It's right. going to burn one way or the other, so it's, it's okay to take the, uh, the yeah. uh, thermal blankets off. 
So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that means it's time to deorbit. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And thank you. We, we thank all of our $10 and up Patreon supporters. And Tim Dodd upped his, his donation at $10. So even though we've already thanked him once, I'm going to go ahead and thank him again. Thank you, Tim. You're too kind. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Everyday Astronaut. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or you can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And that's it. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See ya.